All right, we've been studying the book of Ephesians, and uh, most of Paul's focus so far in this book has been on our life together as a church. It's been um, kind of a, a corporate focus, and um, in this passage that we're going to study today, Paul turns his focus more towards the individual. So if you've been waiting for a personal word for you, Paul's got it here, and uh, we can dive in and understand that. Um, verse 14 through 21 of Ephesians chapter 3 is what we're looking at. Ephesians 3, verse 14 through 21. I'll give you a moment to find that in your Bibles. Ephesians 3, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Please pray with me quickly as we start the sermon here. Lord God, I thank you for your word that you have given us um, to understand who you are, to understand your love and your glory. And God, I pray that you would speak clearly to each of us in this time, that we would understand what you meant uh, when you inspired Paul to write these words, what you meant him to write, what you meant his hearers, the original hearers, the Ephesians to understand, and God, what you would have us to understand in this day. God, I pray that you would give us the courage and the humility to live these things that we learn and not just to let it be a head knowledge. God, I pray that you would be with me as I speak, that you would give me words of truth and stop up anything that doesn't come from you. Amen. So verse 14 resumes a prayer that Paul actually started back in verse 1 of this uh, chapter. And I love Paul because he's so excited to talk about everything all at once. That he'll side rail himself and go off in a different direction, but praise God, he comes back to what he was going to say. So chapter 3 said, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, and he's off like a shot, to talk about the amazing things that God has done for the Gentiles. But he comes back a few verses later with this. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Um, and he says that every family in heaven and on earth is named from the Father. And that's kind of a tricky thing to understand. Um, what does he mean by families in heaven? Well, there were three different possibilities that I could come up with um, as I was studying this. The first is that he may be talking about families in heaven being the angels and the families on earth being people. Um, and there's some support to that uh, because the Jews often called angels God's upper family and his people on earth his lower family. 
Um, if that's what Paul is meaning here, that he's talking about families of angels and families on earth of people, this would be the only place in the Bible that has any kind of indication that there's a family structure um, to angels. There are some Jewish texts that were written after the Old Testament was concluded and before the New Testament began. Um, some Jewish texts that talk about families of angels, and there were some rabbis around the time of uh, Paul's writing Ephesians that would talk about the families of the angels. But within Scripture, within the canon of Scripture, if that's what he's talking about, this would be the only thing that suggests some kind of family structure of angels. The second possibility is that Paul might be talking about Jews and Gentiles, Jews being the families in heaven and families of Gentiles being um, the families on earth. And um, the support for that would be that uh, the book of Ephesians is full of examples of the way that Jews and Gentiles are united together in Christ. And so if families of Jews and families and Gentiles are all named after the one heavenly father, then that's a unifying idea. So that's a possible explanation of this. And a third one is that uh, Paul is talking about the saints in heaven, the saints who have died and gone on before us in heaven versus those that are still alive on earth. Um, God has perfected the saints that have died. They've been sanctified. They've been made holy. They've been made perfectly united with Christ. And so if this is what he's talking about, the point here would be that we can trust God to do what he has promised for us who are on that path, because we can know that he has done those things of making perfect the saints that have gone before us. Now, there's not enough here for me to feel comfortable making a strong conclusion about which of these alternatives it is. Um, personally, I find the first, talking about angels, to be the weakest argument, and the last to be the strongest, the one that makes the most sense to me. But in any case, we skipped over a little piece of poetry here. We dove right into what does it mean, the, heavens of fam uh, the heavenly families, but there's something else here that we moved past. It says, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family on earth is named. So in Greek, the word for father is pater. And the word for family is patria. We get the name, uh, the word patriotic from that uh, same root. So pater and patria, they're clearly linguistically related. And so what we learn here is not necessarily something about the difference between families of heaven and families on earth, that's kind of a side issue and not what I think we should be focusing on, but rather that God's stamp is on every earthly family. The structure of the family is built after God's own heart. And just as in our country, the family is usually named after the father's family name. So my kids are Bickfords because that was my family name. In the same way, God's name is stamped on the concept of family. And that connection is so much more than just logical. In Greek, it's actually linguistical. It's built into the very words and the very vocabulary there. Now, I know that not all of us have perfect families. And as I've been spending a lot more time at home over the last couple of months, I realize more and more that my own family is not perfect. And I don't say that to cast any kind of doubt on my wife or on my kids. The reality is that a big part of that imperfection is because they have, as the earthly father of the earthly family, me, an imperfect person. 
And we should be looking always to our perfect Heavenly Father to model our families after. Because as imperfect as we are, as blemished as that image of the family might be, every family on earth has some element of goodness in it. It's possible that some of you were abused growing up, or abandoned, or maybe you're a kid living in a difficult family right now. And I would encourage you to turn to scripture so that you can understand what true fatherhood looks like, because God is amazing in his goodness to us. And so we look at some of the characteristics of good families. In good families, there is patience. And we see that modeled by God himself. In the Old Testament, as we see over and over and over again, the Israelites sinned against God. They broke his law, but God sent judge after judge and king after king and prophet after prophet to try to call them back. And yes, there was punishment, but there was also redemption and forgiveness. And God preserved his people throughout that entire period of rebellion. God was patient with them. Sometimes people get this idea that the Old Testament God and the New Testament God are two different things. They say, you know, love your enemies and turn the other cheek. That Jesus guy, I like him. But the Old Testament God who's, you know, throwing lightning bolts and sending plagues and judging people, I don't know about that guy. In reality, they're one and the same. And if you read through the Old Testament carefully, you see that God is a God of mercy. And God is a God of love. And he carries that through from the very first page of our Bible all the way until the end. We have one God. He doesn't grow up. He doesn't change. He hasn't matured somehow from a a tempestuous child into, you know, a more loving God. It's the same God who proclaims his own characteristics in the Old Testament through the prophets to be loving and patient. And God is patient In a good family, people place the family good over their own personal good. And we see that in a good family, there's this understanding that I can't be happy, I can't be successful unless my family is happy and successful. And that's the way God works for his family as well. I mean, it's hard to understand how it would be personally good for God to take all of his fullness and put that into a newborn, weak, helpless baby. And to not only do that, but allow himself to die a physical death on the cross for us. He put that family good over his own personal good, because that is the model of a good family. We also see genuine tenderness in a good family, And Jesus modeled that and spoke that and and evidenced that when he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. And you can hear the passion that Jesus has for Jerusalem, the city of the Jews the place that should have been most welcoming to the Messiah, and he was brokenhearted over them. He was tender towards them. And he was ready, like a mother hen, to call them in under, 
to warm them, to be a living umbrella over them with his wings, to keep the rain off their backs. He was willing to do those things because of his tenderness. And a good family has true, genuine tenderness. A good family also has a place of protection. We shouldn't be worried about our safety, our physical, our emotional safety in a good family because there's protection. And I love that analogy of the mother hen because there's so much more to it than just the idea of physical warmth or physical comfort. We have a hen right now who's raising chicks. She's got seven little chicks. And if I step foot into that chicken run, she lets out a squawk and all those chicks come running from wherever they were scratching and they dive underneath her. And she'll hunch down her neck and put out her wings and look up at me and say, don't you dare touch my chicks. She's ready to protect them. All six pounds that she weighs, she's ready to protect them against any predator, any person who comes in. The fierceness of a mother hen is amazing. And Jesus said that he is like that. He is ready to protect his people against any enemy and against the enemy. And so if these characteristics don't sound like your family, if that's not what you experienced growing up and it's hard for you to understand what it means to be in a good family, I pray that you would look to scripture and dive into these things and ask God to reveal to you his goodness as the father. Because his name is stamped on our families, our patria. In verse 16, Paul prays that the people would be strengthened through his spirit in your inner being. And he returns here to the themes of power and of knowledge that he prayed for the church in chapters 1. Now he's talking specifically to individual Christians. And we know that because saying to a group of people that you be strengthened in your inner being doesn't make much sense. But if he's talking to the individuals of that group within the church, now that concept of inner being starts to make some sense. Um, My study Bible has a note on here that says, Christianity is neither a common confession to the exclusion of individual experience, nor a private piety without corporate vision. So what that means is that, um, and why Paul addresses his prayer both to the church and to individuals, is that both those things are important. It doesn't matter whether your parents are Christians and your grandparents, and your great-grandparents, maybe everybody in your family that you know is a Christian, but that doesn't do anything for you as an individual. Our faith is individual, and you can't be saved by belonging to a particular family. You can't be saved by belonging to a particular church. You can't be saved by the faith of somebody else, the faith of your pastor, the faith of your parents, or the faith of the people who gather around you. It needs to be your faith in order to be saving faith. But we also see that the corporate experience is important as well. And so genuine Christianity doesn't look like a person reading the Bible on his own, singing songs on his own, praying on his own, but never stepping through the doors of a church. We need to gather together with our fellow believers in corporate fellowship. And that is so important. And it's why Paul addresses this not only to the church, but also to individuals, both and. 
We need to have both aspects of that. It is important to study your Bible on your own. And if you only go to church to be fed, you're missing out. At the same time, if you're only going an individual study, is a good chance you're going to miss something that God has to share with you. You might end up in some weird interpretation that is outside of what God intended because we can be deceived by our own thoughts and our own studies. So take the time to bounce ideas off of other people, to live your personal faith in the context of the church. Paul prays in verse 17 that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, isn't that a little piece of Christianese? (laughs) That Jesus is going to live in your heart. And that one's a hard one to understand. Um, I think it's unfortunate that we use that phrasing most often with children. Because when I was a kid, I got the image of some kind of like paper valentine with a pop-up mechanism and you open it up, woo, there's Jesus in my heart. But that's not what it means, is it? We know that Christ's physical body is in heaven because he ascended after he died and was raised and appeared to so many different people. And I think that this is talking um, about being synonymous with the spirit being in your inner being. It's one concept that's explained in two different ways. The spirit in your inner being and Christ being in your heart is the same thing. And the reason I think that is uh, found in John chapter 14. I'm going to read a few verses, so I'd invite you to turn there yourself in your Bible. John chapter 14. And we're going to look at verse 16, starting in verse 16. John 14, verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I in you. So Jesus makes this connection. He says he's going to send the Spirit to be our helper, and in that way, he will be in us. And I think that that's what this is talking about. So we see that there is something fundamentally and radically different when a person comes to Christ. I mean, how often do we feel weak and confused? Like we don't know what to do with the difficult things that surround us. And even if we did know, we're not powerful enough to make it happen. Do you want power? Do you want to stay in that condition of weakness? Or do you want to be able to have victory? Guys, there's a reason that sin is so hard to defeat. It's because it's more powerful than we are. Because sin offers the promise of pleasure. And we get confused so often about pleasure versus happiness. Sin gives pleasure for a moment. But with it comes a generous, heaping side dish of guilt. And guilt is the destroyer of joy. We need to deal with our guilt in order to be joyful. And so we have to fight against sin, but it's hard because sin is more powerful than we are. But God puts that power, his power into us 
so that we are fundamentally and radically different. We are able to face up against sin because of the power of God that is in us. In verse 17, Paul says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. And I love those words, rooted and grounded. You guys know I'm a forester by training. I'm an ecologist by profession. And um, I just love that idea because what the soil gives to a living plant is rooted and grounded. Right? The grounded is physical support that the plant would just fall over if it didn't have roots stuck in the ground. And then the rooting aspect, the roots are the feeding structures so that the soil can put nutrients and water into the plant so that it can grow and thrive. I know we've all had times when we were feeling frustrated or powerless or down. And if you can go and find somebody that you love and say, this is what I'm dealing with. And through their love, they build you up and encourage you. They feed you and they support you. And if that's true for our earthly relationships, how much more so when we're talking about the love of Christ that can build us up and support us even more, that feeds us with the things that we need in order to thrive in this life. Paul prays that you would comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of Jesus' love. And again, I love this one. I'm reminded of a particular tree on the campus of the University of North Dakota that I used to like to lie underneath. And I would look up into the branches, a giant cottonwood tree, probably three foot diameter. And the sun would be shining through those leaves, some of them bright golden yellow with the sun directly on them, some of them a bright green, some of them dark green that were in the shade. And I would look up and see how tall that tree was and how wide and how long. And then you learn that trees oftentimes have as much biomass below ground as they do above, and you're surprised by the depth of that tree. And it's the same way with Christ's love. Paul prays that we would have, uh, that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And that's a little bit of an oxymoron, isn't it? Because how can we know something that surpasses knowledge? But as we study about the love of Christ, we grow more and more amazed by it. And we realize how much more there is to learn. Just as Jordan is still learning after years of being a Christian, that God loves us because he wants to. The depths of God's love are surprising. And right when you think you know how tall it is, then you realize, oh, this thing's got width too. And right when you figure out how wide it is, it's got length too. And we probably will never plumb the depths of Jesus' love for us. But we should be learning about it. We need to know that which surpasses knowledge and be amazed by it. Paul prays that we would be filled with the fullness of God in verse 19. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And if that's not a surprising statement, I don't know what it is, because how can the maker of the universe in all of his fullness and greatness, how can that fill me? I mean, it's not going to fit. So let's look to a couple of different places in scripture to understand this. 
Ephesians chapter 4, next page over, you could even look at it. Verse 13 says, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So as we mature and grow, just as a boy turns into a man, so we turn into the image of Christ in our walk with him. And just as a boy is in one sense incomplete, and when he becomes a man, he becomes full. As we grow more like Christ, we leave behind our incompleteness and our imperfection and grow more like Christ and more full in that. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The entire fullness of God's deity exists bodily in Jesus Christ. That's the fullness that we're talking about, that we can be filled with. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. So we're God's children now, but not yet. There's still more to come. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. That's the fullness of God, that we become like, and it fills us as we become more and more like him. Charles John Ellicott is a commentator on um, a number of different New Testament books, and he said about this passage this, When Christ dwells in the heart, we have first love, perfecting the faith which roots the life in him, next a thoughtful knowledge, entering by degrees into the unsearchable riches of his love to us, and lastly the filling the soul, itself weak and empty, up to the perfection of likeness to him, so renewing and deepening through all time and eternity the image of God in our humanity. Beloved, we're created in the image of God. Every single human being bears the stamp of our maker. And sin tarnished that image, but God, praise God, polishes off that sin as we become more and more made like Christ in our walk. The last two verses of the chunk that we're going to look at today are a doxology, a praise for God. It says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. God is able to do far more than we are able to think or imagine. It was one year when I was 10 years old, my family was leaving North Dakota, and we were driving back to our home in Arizona, and my parents decided that we would get to stop at Valley Fair in Minnesota. And as we drove away, from Grand Forks, North Dakota, I was thinking roller coasters. And as we crossed into the border of Minnesota, I was thinking roller coasters. And we pulled up to the uh, park entrance, find a place to park, and I was thinking roller coasters. 
we wait in line, we buy our tickets, and we go through, and my view was filled with all of these roller coasters as we went through the gates of the park. And we waited in line some more and finally got on this roller coaster. And as we sat down and buckled ourselves in, I'm all excited and ready to go. I was so full of an imagination, an idea of how much fun this was going to be. And the roller coaster started moving and I'm going, woohoo, already, this is great. And then we hit a hill, the first hill, and click, 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 click. Notch by notch, the cart gets pulled up the hill. And I'm going, this isn't what I thought. This isn't what I had bargained for. Is this all there is? But we got to the top of that hill and the speed picked up and we swooped down. And for the next several minutes, I was overwhelmed because I had no idea what that roller coaster would be like. If you want to talk about something that is far more than we can believe or ask or hope, it's that we would be made like Christ. That we sinners, tainted, broken, weak, would be made like Christ. Sometimes people explain salvation like God giving you a blank slate. Like you've got a piece of paper before you, you're doing your homework, and you wrote down 2 plus 2 equals 22. You know it's wrong, but you just can't quite figure out what happened. And salvation is like that piece of paper, God taking that and crumpling it up and throwing it away and giving a new one so you can start over. That's the concept of mercy. And God does do that. He is merciful in that he doesn't punish us. He doesn't write that big red F on our sin when we get it wrong. But that's not all that salvation is. What God actually does is he takes that paper of wrong work that you have done and he crumples it up and he throws it to the side. And then he reaches to the desk of that nerdy kid right next to you who always gets it right without ever trying and he takes his paper and he puts it on your desk and he writes your name at the top. We aren't just placed back in the position of Adam and Eve in the garden, sinless and able to choose yes or no, God or not. That's not all that salvation is. We are made like Christ at the moment of salvation. We have a better deal than Adam and Eve did. And that is amazing to me. Far more than I can believe. If it wasn't written in those pages of scripture, I wouldn't believe it. Because it's better than we can ask for. God is a merciful God. And he is also a graceful God. He is full of grace his mercy is not punishing us for the things that we deserve. And his grace is giving us far better than we deserve. And that is truly wonderful. And so we see that the correct response to this, the response that Paul gives us is to praise God. And why? Because that thing that happens is according to the power at work within us. This isn't about my power over sin. This isn't about my works within me. This is according to Christ's power that is at work within me because of his love and his glory. 
And so we turn around and we say, glory to God in the church and in Christ Jesus. This is the place where Paul started. Now, these are the last words of the doctrinal half of this book. The first three chapters deal with doctrine, the concrete truths about God. And the last three chapters of the book are application. How do we live in light of that? And Paul's last words in this doctrinal half are praise be to God. What were his first words of this half? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, he starts and he ends this chunk of scripture, these three wonderful chapters the same way. Because when we understand what grace is, we glorify God. So here's the big idea of this passage. God's glory and love cause us to be able to know his glory and love so that we are filled with his power and respond with worship for his glory and love. I did a little bit of a bait and switch on you guys. I said this was the moment to be all about you, and it is. It is all about you, but not so that you could just be warm and fuzzy. It's so that you can worship the great God that has made this possible. And so I'm going to speak to those of you who are Christians. Share these truths with someone that you love. I'm going to make it easy for you and record this. It's going to be on our church website. It's going to be on our podcast. And so if you want to share this link with somebody, it's easy to do that. But I think it would be better for you to call them up and have a discussion. Say, I heard some ideas in church service today, and I want to know what you might think about it. Share them in your own words. For those of you that are not Christians, I want to say this. The best thing about being made into Christ's image is that it is fast. It's not like mailing in your tax return and waiting a month for the IRS to mess with it and then send you back a check and then deposit that check and then it's three more days before you can actually use the money. It's not even like clicking that e-file button and it goes off and a week later the money is in your account. There's no waiting period with God. God doesn't take your application and stick it underneath the pile of applications to get to later after he kind of gets through all these ones that are more important. You can walk away from this service a different person than the way you came. If you come in weakness, you can walk away with power. If you come frustrated that your family looks so little like what I talked about, you can go away from here, part of the family of God, and begin to be used by God to make your earthly family more like his heavenly family. It's fast. In an instant, you can be changed. So if that's something that resonates with you right now, I encourage you to pray. First, pray that God would show you his glory and his love, because understanding that is where it starts. That's what this passage is about. We understand God's glory and love so that we can have power. So pray first for that. And then call me. Or call Joe LeGrew or David Kirk or your Christian friend. But don't put it off anymore. 
you can be left in a position of weakness where the world is too big for you, where you're crushed by fear, or you can walk away a person of power. And so may God, who according to his love and glorious power, fills us with his strength, be praised. May God be praised. And may he bless you richly this day and forevermore. Go in peace. Amen.